Before we begin today, I want to thank you listeners for helping 501c3BS blowing up into one of the top 10 podcasts for the social sector. You can help us even more by following the podcast, liking it, reviewing it, or sharing it in your social media. The more followers we have, the more episodes we can produce, helping you clear away the BS from your mission. Thank you. And now, on with the show. The Orange County Community Foundation has been dedicated to unleashing the power of philanthropy since 1989. In their last annual report for 2017, they reported that there was $302 million in total assets with $82 million in contributions coming in just last year and $59 million in grants and scholarships awarded. They are the largest funder in Orange County and a leader among funders for the county and one of the largest community foundations in the United States. They've given out a quarter of a billion dollars in granting just over the last five years. Today, we're going to talk with Todd Hansen. Todd is the vice president in charge of the Center of Engaged Philanthropy at the Orange County Community Foundation. Today, we're going to clear up all the myths surrounding funding, both from the funder side and from the organizational side. Welcome to 501c3BS deprogramming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! So, Todd, welcome to 501c3BS. Uh, you and I spoke a little bit with Shelly last season when I did a podcast and I wanted to have you back because you're, well, you and Shelly are two of my favorite people anyway, but you are so articulate about what funders want, what funders need, what we as the uh, community benefit organizations in the community, what we need to do to better connect with funders. So that's what we're talking about today is all the, the BS or myths or misconceptions around funding. Um, so first of all, before we get started, um, do you want to just uh, rather than me, you know, read a bio of you, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, I'd love to. And I'm, I'm really pleased you invited me because it, you know, my background is this, the last 17 years of the Community Foundation is working with philanthropists and supporting their giving and, you know, finding out why do they give, you know, how do they select organizations, what do they like and don't like. So that's going to be a lot of the basis for, you know, what I can share today you know, both in individual philanthropists as well as sitting on hundreds of grant review committees, reading thousands of proposals over the years and seeing the organization that scored in 90, they got funded and the one that scored in 89.5 and didn't get funded. <laughs> you know, so this work is just so important and there's so many needs, we can't fund them all. And so if I can share information that helps an organization kind of rethink how they talk to funders and donors and become more successful, then I've really helped us achieve our goal. And I ran a nonprofit for eight and a half years, and I wish I knew then what I know now. I mean, I did very well. I was very skilled at grant writing, you know, and, and that aspect. But um, it's different being on the other side of the table. It's, it's much different. So, uh, and, and just a little bit about the Orange County Community Foundation. You're the largest funder in Orange County. You also are a leader amongst funders because you run a funders roundtable where you get funders together to talk about common issues, work on collective impact projects? Is there anything else you want to add about the work of the Community Foundation? Well, I think you captured that very well in that as funders, we need, we've often asked organizations to collaborate and work together. And we have to do the same thing, take our own advice. And when we realize that a lot of us have the same goals and missions, and if we can combine our resources, you know, to do better, we're going to do that. And so we've kind of taken the lead in that role in, in many instances and has had some really good results. Great. So let's get to some of the mythology of our sector having to do with funding and fundraising. Uh, one of the things that we hear a lot, and this was kind of debunked a little bit by some of our guests in our first season, is this myth that we don't have enough resources around. You know, we're, we're living in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, you know, anyone who's making over $30,000 a year in America is in the top 2% of earners in the world. Um, so, you know, it's kind of funny for me when I hear people who are my peers talking about not having enough resources. And somebody in the first season, I think it was Heidi Gottlieb, um, made the mention of, you know, we have lots of resources, not necessarily money. And people don't often look enough at the 
resources they have around them that are not monetary. And I know in my work, I found a lot of that to be strategic partnerships, being able to partner with others so that both of us, you know, get a high tide that raises all of our ships by working together on resources I don't have, they have, and vice versa to work together to make us both better. Um, what do you, what's your kind of take on this thought that we don't have enough resources? Well, you captured it very well in the intro there, but um, I know people sometimes ask, like, you know, who are our competitors? And we, you know, because there's other similar organizations trying to compete for philanthropic dollars. And we say, well, no, our competitors in conspicuous consumption, you know, is people that want to buy a boat and an airplane rather than giving. And so, so you're right, there is so much out there and there's so many people that want to do it that they're not competing against a lack of resources, just tapping in the resources that exist. And as, as you mentioned, it's not always going to be a donor with a check in hand. It's going to be a partner that's going to strengthen your programs, help serve your clients also, you know, get more exposure to the issue that you're addressing. So yeah, I guess the challenge is just that mindset. And, but we can understand why a nonprofit would have that, you know, because it's hard to keep the money coming in and, and when you see the needs every day to dedicate the time to do it. But if you are creative and, and get out of the office and talk to people, then you're going to debunk that myth that there's not enough out there because, as you said, it is. It, you just have to, you know, be willing to find it. Right. You know, it's interesting what you said about, you know, sometimes the people that you're dealing with on the funding side of the table are people who are weighing their options between buying a new boat or a plane and giving to an organization a large sum of money. And, you know, one thing that I always hear and always believe is that we're not really asking people for money. We're bridging their desire to give with an organization that they may be want to be affiliated with, right? And, and really kind of connecting them to our mission. So, um, you know, I've heard, uh, you know, Marty Burbank is a great example. He's a, a lawyer in our community that years ago he decided he was going to buy a boat and he realized that he could give a little bit of money to an entire kindergarten class, put them all through college by the way that they, that's invested, um, and, and basically give college tuition to an entire generation from one kindergarten class for the price of the boat. And so that's what he decided to do. And he got a lot of notoriety and press for it. But, um, you know, we're not always asking people for money, really, are we? I mean, aren't we really just trying to connect people who already want to give? Exactly. And what you just said ties into so much that I wanted to share today. Oh, good. In terms of just understanding the donor motivation. I think one myth or challenge out the misconception is that the donor right now that's giving 100 or 200 or $500 isn't worth investing a lot of time into because that's, you know, not a lot of money. That's not a big support for organization. However, I've seen so many of our donors that started with a small amount that bumped it up if the organization really demonstrated, you know, that what they were doing was in alignment with the values and mission and what that person wanted to achieve. So it wasn't about the zeros in the check, you know, it was about alignment of what they want to do. And the organization that builds that confidence is going to, you know, get that from the donors. Yeah, it's funny you say that because my wife and I, you know, had made a decision we wanted to give 10% of our income back um, years ago. And we started doing that through setting up a fund through a, a community foundation. And, um, you know, often we'll give a $500 donation to test out, to see what they do with it, how they react to it, see what their management's like, see if it's a, an organization we want to give more to. Now, we're not wealthy people. A big donation for us would be, you know, $2,000. But, you know, it's nice to kind of try it out, do a trial balloon, and then give something more. And I'm sure very wealthy people do the same thing, but on a much larger scale, yes? Yeah, very true. And also, I don't think it's a myth that information is out there of how much effort goes into bringing a new donor in, how easy it is to not get them renewed. And I don't really see very many organizations putting much effort into renewing, you know, donors, keeping that going forward. Yeah, that's and that's a big thing is donor retention, right? And the smaller organizations, they don't generally um, pay attention to it. They're so focused on getting in new donors. And, and actually, I kind of prefer the word funder because you know, they're, they're investing in an organization, but, um, they're bringing in new funders and not necessarily thinking about what are we doing to pull the ones already involved into the mission more, getting them closer. Because it is true that I think as people get into the mission more, they tend to get more involved and give more without the ask even, right? 
Agreed. We had a question about about that, uh, the science of fundraising. I had a fundraiser that I, I had applied for a job at one time as the CEO of a of an uh, arts high schools foundation, and the the uh, pres- board president was a hospital fundraiser, and he was you know very much into the science of fundraising. And he asked me, you know, what are you going to do to move these targets closer to, um, you know, to give more money and and move them up the chain and. I said to him, you know, if that's what you want, then I don't want this job because that's not what I'm interested in doing. I'm more of an art of fundraising guy where I feel like it's important to get people involved in the mission and then let them decide what's good for them. And I found that to be more effective. Am I wrong in that? I mean, is this kind of mythology that you have to target people and move them up the chain? Is that the correct way to go about it? Or, or, or is it just two different styles? Or what do you, what's your thinking about that? No, I agree with you. I don't see that style working any longer in general um, for most people because the way philanthropy is today is what you said is is, is people that are, are really paying more attention to you know what's going on and, and what works. And so the science isn't moving them up a ladder but really connecting with them on, on why this is important and why it works. Yeah, because, I mean, the reason they're giving is they care about a particular issue, right? Maybe it's um, animal rights and they want to get dogs and cats neutered. And so they want to connect to a shelter. So they've already decided that in their head. If you're the CEO of the local shelter, your job is just to really get them feeling connected to the mission of your particular shelter. Maybe it's because it's no kill or maybe it's because you're doing something that reach out that other shelters aren't doing. And when they connect to that, they feel so good about what you're doing as opposed to other shelters, then they really want to give more on their own, I think, right? Oh, completely agree. And you know, one thing I like to share with nonprofits is when they're thinking about their funders and donors is to not think of them as a donor relationship, but as an individual relationship. So as you said, you know, they are into maybe no-kill shelters because they have a pet themselves or they believe in that. So that's a different way of looking at it than someone who's just writing a check, but someone that is experiencing or, or believes in what you do. And that's why they've connected with you. So uh, another kind of piece, piece of mythology is this idea that um, we don't want to try something new. We want to go with what works. And so people will write the same grants over and over and over again. And now you and I have had some conversations about this. And uh, a lot of times, in my opinion, um, seeing these these things as a grant panelist, a lot of times they're writing the same thing that's not working over and over again and not really getting that. Not only are they not doing anything new or innovative, what they were doing is no longer working. It may have worked once, but, you know, uh, uh, as times change and the leadership doesn't change, sometimes those things stop working and they don't realize it. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I'll give you an example just today. I've seen that it, this was a nonprofit that helps feed the hungry. And the model for a long time to see them proposals was just to put the food out there and and people would show up and get it. However, when did they do it? It was when volunteers were available. And most people worked, couldn't get there. So they were missing out on serving a lot of people that needed help. So they made a shift to now they schedule appointments so they can, vol- they can stay out their volunteers better. But also it's more you know, convenient for the actual person they're trying to help. So for how many years had they just said, you know, line up and come get it? And people stood in line for hours to get support. We've seen that. That's changing now. Over 70% of the organizations that are delivering food now to, through pantries are moving to this model. And it started with someone innovating and bringing up that, I, that idea to do it differently. And that comes from program people seeing that we need to serve our, our clients better and coming up with new and innovative ways to do that, or, or even just tweaks of what they've been doing that makes it work better. Like, you know, that sounds more like a, a kind of a feature than a whole new program, right? Um, but that can make a huge difference in programming. And a lot of times I think people don't connect their program staff to their fundraising staff. I have this kind of new philosophy I've been developing that at least for small organizations to mid-sized organizations, Maybe it's not necessary to have a fundraising officer, quote unquote, as there always has been. I'm starting to come around to the idea that the people who write grants best are program people because program people design the programs and the grant is basically just a proposal for good design, right? So shouldn't in my, in my new way of thinking that I've been kind of um, developing, I got to tell you, I'm not fully developed on it myself, but 
I've been thinking if program people are the best people to do um, grant writing and the CEO is, is the funnel which all funds should go through and really should be out there making the relationships for a small organization um, and the marketing people should really be getting the story and the message out. If you have really good marketing people, a really good, devoted, active CEO who's networking and really good program staff, you may not need a fundraising person at your organization. What do you think about that? I agree 100 um, percent. Just in my own, own situation, I ran a nonprofit for eight years. I raised over a million dollars a year and I had no fundraiser. <laughs> yeah. But I, I knew the program inside and out. I could talk about it. I could sell it. Um, and so that, that worked for me. And then when I'm evaluating an organization now that let's say is $300,000 and they're spending 60 grand a year on the fundraiser, that's a big chunk of the budget. You know, we're not seeing a return. And so you, I will wonder, well, why isn't that director just making this happen? They're going to have a lot more resources, you know, for the programs if they allocate it differently. And don't you think that that $60,000 might be better spent by having more? I mean, some of those people have a fundraiser and no marketing department. And wouldn't they be better spent that, spending that to get more funding by having their story out there more in the community in better ways, uh, by putting that into marketing or putting it into program and other areas? Yeah, I believe for most organizations, that would be a better investment of their resources. And also, if you do the, the research on why do funders give, they give because they believe in the leadership, the people doing the work. So while fund development staff are amazing and they're helpful to have, that's generally not why we're supporting organization. And so the more that you can get the program staff and the leadership up front in the messaging and in the creation of, you know, the grants and outreach, I think the better success you're going to have. I, I do believe that people will give to for one or two reasons. Either they're connected to the mission or they're connected to a person at the organization they believe in. But generally, it's not the fundraiser they're connected to if it's a person. It's the CEO or somebody that they think has taken the place into a new direction. I know I used to get that a lot when I came to the Muckenthaler, that people just liked the way I was moving it. And that's why they gave, not necessarily that they cared that much about the arts, but they saw it as an important thing for the community because of the leadership. So... Um, yeah, I, I don't know too many people that give because they really love the fundraising guy <laughs> or girl. Yeah, even though they are amazing. <laughs> even though they are amazing. So if people reorganize that way, uh, these people who've made a science of fundraising through organizations like the Association of Fundraising Professionals, I know I went and I got my CFRE. I mean, those things could still happen, but you might have a program person focusing on grant writing and you might have a marketing person focusing on message right? It doesn't necessarily have to be through a position of a fundraiser. Agreed. Yeah, completely. Another thing that you hear a lot um, is this idea that, oh, we have to get a really nice gift for the funder who gave us $20,000 or a million dollars or whatever, our biggest funder. We have to get a really nice gift for them and people will go out and spend money. And what I've heard constantly from you and other funders is, we don't want an expensive gift. You know, give us something that the kids made if it's a kid's charity or the paw prints on a paper that the dogs made if it's a dog shelter or whatever. It doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be something that ties to the story of the mission, right? Yeah. I mean, I work with, you know, several hundred active philanthropists here, and I can't think any of any of them that, you know, want a gift. And as a fact, as a matter of fact, a lot of them tell me if they send something, I'm not going to fund them anymore because I want all their, you know, attention going to the program and not sending me a calendar or coffee mug or something like that. Um, and you may have heard me share one of our active donors that passed away recently said, if I can't eat it, I don't want it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so some organization then sent her, you know, like a fruit basket, which she liked, you know, but didn't necessarily need also. But um, yeah, most active philanthropists are not looking for a gift. They're looking, no. the gift they want is a better community or, or, or things being better because of their giving. And the last thing they want is another framed thing they have to stick on their wall or a dust collector, right? <laughs> they're, they're just looking to know that their gift has been used, right? Exactly. Um, so an, another thing that we hear a lot, oh, I'll give you one of my big pet peeves from sitting on grant panels, is you sit on a grant panel and you'll read these grants that are just filled with fluff and how we're going to cure world peace and, you know, and then there's no specifics. And when you talk to them, they're completely oblivious to why their grant didn't get funded because they thought, well, we're curing world peace. You know, why did we get funded? And they write in broad terms without any specifics. So, um, you know, speak a little bit to in, in philanthropy, how important it is to show what what little corner of the neighborhood you're fixing 
and in, in real detail as opposed to the kind of the fluff proposals that you get. Okay, I'll give you the first example that popped in my head. Yeah, we see this all the time. And, and actually, when I give um, presentations on grant writing, the first rule I say is don't annoy the reviewer. <laughs> and you annoy the reviewer if you make them sort through all sorts of ex, you know, extra information that isn't pertinent to the funding decision. And yeah, they want to get right to the point of what this is for, you know, how it's going to, why it's important, you know, why you're qualified to do it. Is there any other tips you want to give for, for grant writers out there or proposal writers? <laughs> well, it's funny. I don't annoy the reviewer. My other big one is read the instructions. <laughs> yes. And read the guidelines, right? Because if you because as funders, we hate to turn down requests. Um, and it's hard, like I mentioned in the beginning, you know, sometimes the difference between who gets funded and who doesn't is pretty slim. And it's a tough choice. And we hate that conversation for the person who just missed it. But they often make it easy for us by just not following the instructions. You're not really understanding the intent of the program, what's going to be there. So usually between 10 and 30% of the proposals get declined because they, they just didn't follow the directions of what the funder was wanted. Yeah. And, and you might there might be like some little bullet item that totally discounts you the what you wanted to write it for. And you may have another program that's perfect for that but you went for this one with because you didn't see that one bullet item right that happens a lot it does yes i think a lot of people don't realize um, that there are three phases to a, a project you have the phase where you evaluate what you're currently doing and come up with whatever changes you want to the program and then the phase where you actually write the grant and do the program and then the phase where you report on the program and evaluate what you did and i think don't you think that a lot of people who are out there looking for funding ignore the first and the last of those three phases? And they're not necessarily evaluating what's working and not working at their organization. And they're not evaluating what they've done in terms of a grant. And that's a big reason why they're not getting funded. Um, do you want to say anything more about that before we move on? Yeah, because when I was, without seeing your list, thinking of like the myths that are out there, evaluation was one I was wanted to talk about. Oh, good. Because this has been a topic of conversation forever since I've been here in terms of what we expect. And what, what you just said is like, we don't want you to, you know, just try to prove what you said is right. We want you to be honest about what worked and what didn't work. Evaluation isn't for us. It's for you as an organization. Right. You know, to understand what and you're for the doing community works. too. Yeah, the community, you know, to keep doing it because it's working, or to, you know, make a different, you know, direction because of what you learned in the evaluation. Because if you got that grant from that food bank or food organ or homeless organization, I forget what it was, that said they want to set appointments for their volunteers and appointments for their um, constituents, you you may or may not know if that's a good idea because you have nothing to base it on. But if they said we did an evaluation and we found this is our number one problem. And it's making people leave because they don't want to stand in line uh, because they have to go in another line to get gas somewhere across town for their car that they live in or whatever. If you have this kind of evaluation, then it makes a lot more sense for you to say, yeah, this is good. And then if they come back at the end of that first year and say, this is what we found out after doing this for a year and we need to expand it or we need to tweak it then you're going to provide funding for that expansion or tweaking because you're, you're invested now, right? And a lot of people, I think, when they're writing grants, they, they're not invested. So they're not going to get the funders invested because they haven't done the evaluation before and after the grant. Um, okay. So some people will say, and this gets back to a little bit what we said about relationship building. Some people will say, well, I just wrote my grant. I got my grant. I'm done, you know? And that's something I hear sometimes from peers. They don't realize that there's a whole relationship that happens after the grant has been received, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, th this is something I've really been sharing more with organizations and because we even have to do it here at the foundation. Someone says, a fund, you know, the money comes in the door, then what? And as you said, sometimes there isn't much after the then what, um, but the then what is very important. So, you know, the money came in, now what? Um, the important thing is to find out you probably have a custom follow-up to each grant of, of what the funder may want. And what works well is for an organization to call up and say, hey, thanks, we got the gift. You know, we'd like to keep you in the loop. How would you like to hear from us? And one of the classic stories I have of this is two of the very active philanthropists I work with, the husband and wife, um, he was complaining that he wasn't hearing much from the organization. 
he'd, he'd given $25,000 a year for a couple of years and just didn't feel that connected. So I asked him point blank, I said, well, how often do you want an update from them? He said, well, I like an update once a month. And so I turned to his wife and I said, well, how, how often do you want to hear from them? She said, oh, once a year is fine for me. Mm-hmm. So that, that just stuck with me. It just within a household, you know, different answers. But um, that's a question that most organizations don't ever ask the, the donor or the funder. And if they had that information, that'd be gold. You know, they could really steward them the way that they want to be stewarded. That, that reminds me of something that came up in a marketing um, podcast that we did. Uh, where I was talking about how important it is to have a, a weekly e-blast that goes out to your list um, that kind of just highlights a story of the week of what's going on. And and also, you know, you can use that for other things uh, as well as fundraising and other things. But just to have a weekly touch base with your people and connect them to the mission, how important that is. And the the marketing person I was talking to said, but that's so much work. And I said, but that's like the most important thing that everybody should be doing. If they're not doing at least that, then they're probably not going to be very successful. Um, and what you're saying about checking in with the funder kind of is done by that weekly e-blast when they see what's coming with their their particular program that they're invested in, right? Yeah, and and, and it can't be weekly, bi-weekly, but, but find out you know, what, what they want to hear. So we did this with a group of our donors recently. And because uh, we do a monthly, you know, e-newsletter to our donors, and there's usually like three or four stories in there. And we call it something generic, like OCCF, you know, news. And they said, well, we're not going to open it. We don't know what's in there. Right. So, you know, first, we finish and start by putting a description in the subject line. Then if it's a subject of interest to me, I'm going to look at it. Like a headline of a story. Yeah. And then they, they said further, don't send me four stories. They said they'd rather get one a week from us than to have to click and just you know wait for all the graphics to download. Right. And because they don't read the stuff further down the page. Which and, which I think is good for marketing in general is to you know highlight one thing a week. Yeah, that's just where we are now in terms of how we communicate. Because over 70% of all emails are read on a smartphone. And the average time that someone takes to decide if they're gonna read or not is about three seconds. They're gonna look at it briefly. If you haven't captured them right away, they're deleting it. And so the monthly email you spent time putting together isn't even being read. So I had an epiphany back in 2005 before I came to Orange County when I kind of realized how important the site visit is. And up until that time, I would get grants. I would report on my grants. I've done my due diligence. I'm done. And I didn't realize that I could. You know, I, I just didn't even occur to me that people would show up if I invited them to come and visit the site and see the programs firsthand. And I had uh, an opportunity to do that because a funder requested it. And I saw how valuable it was. And I started making a point to do that with every funder to say, you know, why don't you come? I'll buy you lunch. We'll see what's going on. I really would love for you to see. And most of the time they'll buy me lunch because they're the funder. And they, you know, it's kind of like if you would take your dad out for for coffee, he'll end up buying because he's the dad and he feels responsible. Um, So, you know, most of the time they would end up buying lunch. But just the fact that I offered meant a lot to them and the fact that I wanted them to see the programs firsthand showed uh, uh, transparency. It showed that we were doing what they wanted. And I would say that nine out of 10 times, I would get exponentially larger gifts after doing that. Um, And it wasn't because I made any ask. It was just because I connected them in a real visceral way to the mission. Um, What do you think about site visits and the importance of site visits? Well, for us, they're critical. And we cannot, with confidence, recommend an organization to one of our donors that we haven't been out there and, you know, and talk to the director, met the staff. Um, so it's critical for our work. And um, yeah, our donors that actually go and see the programs, you know, or meet the staff are much more likely to renew the gift than those you know, that don't. So, so you have to find ways that you can get them out to see it. So not everybody's going to spend their lunch to meet the executive director, um, but you could do once a quarter a free feel-good activity, you know, where you can meet some staff or see something. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, I just met with Second Harvest Food Bank, and they have these mobile pantries, and they'll take a group of, of people and donors that can distribute food for an hour. And what better way to understand, you know, who the hungry are and how you can help them than to be there at, at the line you're distributing food baskets. So they actually put you to work as volunteers. Yes. And and how does that ask you go? How did they ask you for that? Well, they just they didn't actually ask us. They just said this is an opportunity. 
And, nice. and I, I know for us, we would rather do that, you know, than sit in a conference room. See, I think that cuts through a lot of BS right there, because I think a lot of us on this side of the table are, are kind of afraid of uh, funders a little bit. You know, they're the big, scary people in the room sometimes. And we don't think they're going to come if we invite them. And I was surprised at how many actually wanted to come and see the programs. And I think most people wouldn't even expect that a funder would want to come and volunteer in a program. But they don't know until they're asked, right? Exactly. And I, I had a, a I was a president of a of a board once that did not want to invite funders to the volunteer luncheon because they said, well, they're not volunteers. And I said, but they're, they're doing as much as volunteers in helping our mission. And they never would have even thought to invite them to be volunteers or let alone even let them come to our precious luncheon, you know, and these, this was a, an organization of much older people. And they just kind of saw that as a different, a whole different thing. And I, it took me almost an hour of, of uh, debating to kind of get to a point where they would allow them to be invited to the luncheon. So it's just, it never ceases to amaze me how people in our organization sometimes see funders as the other mm-hmm. and not really part of the organization, not a stakeholder. Yeah. And I work with a lot of donors, a lot of funders, and they know they don't exist without the organization, that they're there to support them. And, and they don't want that power dynamic. You know, we, we don't exist within a certain amount because we do, at the end of the day, have to make decisions on where funding goes. But you know, we want the relationship. We want the understanding and connection. And we don't want organizations, you know, to be intimidated to ask us questions or ask us out on visits. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you're part of the neighborhood like any other neighbor, and you want to see what's going on in the neighborhood. That's why you're giving, right? So let's talk a little bit about the ask, you know, and there's a lot to be said about the ask. But one of the kind of mythology uh, myths about the ask is this idea that board members um, have to bother their friends. And you hear this a lot when people get on boards. They're so concerned. Do I have to go shake down my friends for money now because I'm on the board? And a lot of people, I think, don't join boards because they think that's part of the uh, the idea of being a board member is that you have to go shake down your friends. And, um, you know, I'm always telling people on boards that I work with that your job is just to get them involved in the mission and let the CEO do the ask. You know, uh, your job is not to ask your friends for money. It's just to invite them to programs, invite them to see what's going on, be passionate about it, be an apostle or a evangelist out in the community for the organization. What's your feeling about this idea that you get on a board, you have to shake down your friends? <laughs> well, there are some organizations where that that is true. I mean, that is that's how they exist is by getting board members that can write checks and introduce them to others. But the vast majority of organizations, um, that's not a strategy at all. And because that's the question that I get all the time. Nonprofits call me and say, well, can you help find me a new board member? And when I query them, what they're really asking is, can you find someone to write checks? Mm -hmm. And a lot of good board members out there know that's the only reason they're being asked to come and serve on the board. And and they're not going to get engaged or feel connected to the organization if that's the you know, main reason that they've been asked to participate. Um, and then, yeah, on top of that, as we've been talking about, you know, then in addition to them giving that they have to, you know, hit up their friends, uh, most of them go running and screaming away from that type of right. situation. Um, so, yeah, if you kind of change that misconception to, yeah, we just need board members to write checks to we're going to have a board culture that really believes in you know what we do and understands it and wants to advance it and then the resources are going to come that way. But, but don't you think even on the, the boards where they're expected to bring in funding, that they would do better bring in funding by just connecting their friends to the mission, inviting them to lunch with the CEO and let the CEO be the conduit for which the ask comes? Oh, by and large, uh, yes. Because if, if it's happening just because it's your golf buddy who has some money, they're not likely going to renew that gift. They're most likely going to do it because they're your golf you buddy and, and they feel obligated. And then what's going to happen to that board member, his golf buddy is going to ask him to give to his charity next. And you started this loop here and you haven't met, made any sort of connection to their friend that you, that might give to you. So as you said, you know, if, if they connect it to the executive director or strong program person, that strategy works much better for the majority of organizations. That's a really great point because that happens all the time where uh, if you're brought on the board because you write checks and you have friends who write checks and you get your golf buddy to give, it's not going to be renewed because they have no connection to the issue. As soon as you're off the board or you're, you know, and, and then you have to give to their charity. 
But if you're inviting them to get part of the mission and they care about the mission because you know your golf buddy cares about whatever it is that you're involved in, then you're really getting them sucked into something bigger than just a one-time check. That's a really good point. So uh, another piece of, of mythology on, on asking for money is this idea that you're, you're begging people. And I hate it when I hear people in our sector say, well, I didn't want to be in fundraising because I didn't want to beg. Or a board member say, I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I wanted to be on a board because I didn't want to have to be begging. And there's this whole idea that our job and I think this is part of what our problem is in Congress and with advocacy, too, is that people think of us as this group of volunteers who go out and beg people for things. Um, and that's not what we do at all. I mean, we are paid organizations that are small businesses that are helping the community and bridging people to our mission. That's not the same thing as begging. We talked a little bit about that at the beginning, but is there anything more you want to say about this mythology that we go out and beg for money? Well, I'll concur with you that... I hate that term, and and I don't think that is the case. Yeah, I don't know if I, I can add much to what you just said, but in the fact that um, we want that connection with the organization, we want them to be asking. Well, here's a great story. So, <laughs> I had one of one of our our major philanthropists we work with lives in a, a community here, and he learned that the organization was doing campaign, but never asked him for money. And he was kind of upset. Like he might have said no, but he he at least wanted to be asked. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, people want to feel they're part of the solution. And if you're making the decline uncomfortable, then that's begging and that's, you know, that's right. the problem. But if you're passionate about the mission and you're connecting with them and, and they feel, you know, connection to that, that's not even close to begging. And that's, you know, a partnership in, in the community and philanthropy. You know, the, the Muckenthalers told me that there was a, a fundraiser for the hospital. They used to show up and with a turkey every Thanksgiving on their door unannounced and give them a turkey like they needed a turkey, right? And um, just, you know, call them every couple of weeks wanting to have lunch. And they just felt like this guy was just a pain in their tush uh, for, you know, and, and, you know, they did give money to the hospital to really to get the guy off their back. But I wonder how much more they would have given if instead of doing that kind of begging approach of, of, of needling them, he just connected them to the hospital. Like I, I said, did he ever give you a tour of what was going on in the hospital? No. You know, what would, well, how much more effective would it have been if he was really kind of, you know, out there connecting them to the hospital, right? Exactly. And this, and that goes back to what I've been trying to say in, earlier is that, you know, just talk to them, you know, what do they want to know about the organization? You know, how do they want to be connected to the hospital? You know, do they want to attend your a lunch or do they want to do a tour or do they want just a check and phone call from the CEO once or twice a year? You know, so if you take it from that approach, then they're going to be happier, feel better about the gift and, and give more. You're a funder in an area with uh, 3 million people in Orange County. You're the largest funder here. What kinds of things do you look for to be in place before you give help or support an organization? One of the number one things we look for in an organization is transparency. We want to feel that like we really understand, you know, who they are, what they're about. And so the organizations that make that easier for us um, or are more likely to be connected and get funding. And that would include evaluating their programs and knowing what their weaknesses and strengths are. You don't necessarily want somebody that's always coming off like we're the greatest and we have everything done and we have everything perfect and nothing is wrong here. Don't look behind the curtain. You want somebody where you can see their weaknesses too, and knowing that they see their weaknesses and they're working on them, right? Yeah, we just we just want open communication. And and the more they do that, the stronger the relationship is, the better chance for funding. Uh, I think a lot of times, uh, also another kind of uh, misconception in our area is that we have to always present our best side. And I remember one time we had a problem um, maybe two years into my term uh, at the Muckenthaler Cultural Center that I used to run where we had a dip in our education programs because we changed the way we did them and we were we were doing a more open outreach program that we're planning for the next year but that caused some of our staff to change and some of our uh, contractors to change and the way we handle our studios to change and i put in the annual report that we had this dip in education and this is the reason why and i got a call from shelly um the, the head of the orange county community foundation to thank me for putting that in the report 
and um, that she thought it was really brave of me to show that in the report and and explain why. And that gave me an opportunity to really tell her what we were planning. And I think you guys were, you know, I think you and I had to talk at the same time. And you were one of the first funders on the new outreach program that ended up just quadrupling our whole organization. So, you know, I think uh, it's not just something you say, it's something you do, too. I, I really, I appreciated that. So um, what are some of the red flags for you as a funder uh, that make you just run the other way when, when you go visit an organization? What should we not be doing? <laughs> well, strength of the leadership is very important. So our one red flag is, is just no evidence of strong leadership or direction for the organization. You know, if I ask the question, you know, what do you want to accomplish this year? And they can't ask it and answer it. Um, that's going to be a concern. You know, so um, so high turnover of staff, that's a red flag for us. And also, we talked about this earlier, the sloppy funding request. So sloppy funding requests, you know, isn't the worst thing you can do, but it just reflects poorly. And, you know, kind of tells us, well, you didn't really, you know, care about the relationship that much if you're not going to take some time you know, to put together, you know, a proposal that, you know, really warrants, you know, our, our interest. So when you get that, you have to figure out, is it a sloppy proposal because they're not trained or a grassroots organization that doesn't know any better or because it's just a lack of management and leadership? Exactly. Because there, there are those small grassroots organizations that are running stuff out of their garage that do amazing work, but they're not trained in fundraising, um, which I guess is kind of a a push for some of those fundraising um, trainings that we were talking about earlier, like AFP does. But um, sometimes it's just a lack of, of knowledge, but they do great work. And you have to parse the difference between that. Yeah, that, that's a balance we have on every kind of grant review is how much do we weigh the quality of the proposal as, as opposed to what we know about the organization? Because we do see you know, media core organizations submitting great proposals and then really strong organizations submitting media core proposals. Right. And you really have to decide, you know, how you're going to make the decision. Is it based on how well they wrote it or what they're actually doing? Yeah, I remember sitting on grant panels for City of L.A. and we would see three or four of the largest organizations in L.A. that everybody knows, right? Sometimes a very poor proposal and they would get a very low score. And then somehow in the allocations panel, they would end up getting it back because they were such a large organization. Somebody would lobby for them. But by the same token, we had small organizations that were running things out of their garage that I, I had one uh, grant request that was done with a, what looked like crayon. And it was so well written um, and so heartfelt and so passionate that we actually ended up, not just me, the whole panel gave them a very high score and we put in the score notes that they had to get technical assistance on, <laughs> on grant writing. Um, but I think we ended up kind of helping birth them into another realm of funding that they weren't getting before. And part of the problem was it was a Latino organization that had English was their second language. So that was part of the issue too. But, um, you know, I think small organizations, and you can back me up on this, have to realize that if they're writing that fits the guidelines and they're the right type of organization for that type of grant, they shouldn't feel timid about going after that funding, right? Yeah. And they should be make sure that they're really being true to who they are and being passionate about what they do. Um, and I think they're as competitive as anybody, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, let's talk about the other side of the table now. Some of the mythology and misconceptions from your side of the organization's and I, you know, have thanks to to being around you and uh, Funders Roundtable and other things, I've kind of heard some of the other side of the table stuff. And one of the things that kind of struck me, I was in Los Angeles uh, at a, a roundtable of funders, and what struck me was how um, a lot of them were talking about that they require in their grant strategic plans. But when it comes to their organizations, they don't follow their own strategic plans. And a lot of times don't even do their own strategic planning. And we had one of the biggest funders in L.A. saying, oh, it's been like 12 years since we've done a strategic plan. And those of us in the audience listening were like, what the, you know, how are you going to tell us that we should be funded based on our plans and you're not doing them? Uh, is there anything that you want to say about that in terms of uh organizations kind of not practicing what they pre <laughs> preach. Uh, another, another example of that is people will, will say, you know, we want you to be true to your programs 
and not be you know turned around by things going on in the in the the political ethos you know but then they would turn around this is that same funders roundtable i was at in la not not in orange county it wasn't your people <laughs> but they said oh you know since trump we've completely changed the way we do our fundraising and we're doing this and we're doing that and and you know the question came up from our side of the table well what what happens to those people that were being funded by you that are now being dropped because you're switching your priorities last second without any planning? So how, I guess what I should say is, um, what what is your what is your feeling about that kind of, what sometimes could be seen as hypocrisy where we are expected to do things that the funders themselves don't do? Well, as you said, in Orange County, we've got a pretty strong network of, of foundations that kind of keep each other accountable, and we stay on top of each other for best practices. And so, yeah, that's what you're saying is what are good practices for funders, and um, and there are funders that don't really follow those. And uh, I'm not sure how to comment. On well, so that. so yeah, so like I said, this was something that I I went to in LA, and I haven't really noticed this in Orange County, and I think you guys are an amazing leader for funders in the county. But what are best practices for funders? If someone's listening to this podcast who is a small funder, maybe they're a community foundation and they don't really know what they should be doing as a community foundation in terms of best practices. What are those? Well, being transparent as well. So being honest, you know, what do we expect? You know, how do you qualify? You know, when will you be eligible? Will we renew this grant? I mean, I think the more we can be upfront with you know, how we're going to operate and what to expect, um, the better funder there will be. Um, and then as, as a funder, you should be aware of, you know, the research out there of what's an impactful gift and, and good strategies. You know, the, the main um, belief we have in funders is first do no harm. You know, so that's one thing we look at. Like we wouldn't want to give you a grant for 50000 to start a program and not consider refunding it if that meant you had to go hire a staff person. Well, that actually got, gets me to something that I – I was going to ask you, which is um, there's this mythology that we're going to give you a grant, um, but you can only write this grant for two years. And then at the end of that, you should be you know, on your way self-sufficient. And not all programs are designed, um, especially if you're working with homeless people or the poor, there's not a lot of earned income streams you can get to make that program self-sufficient. So are funders getting away from that model of, of thinking that okay, we're going to give you money until you're on your feet and then you're on your own for those kinds of programs that can't do that. I think for the most part, funders are getting away from that, that the majority that we work with, they understand that, that they, they're they going to start something with their funding, that they need to continue with it. Um, now you brought up about doing two years. So yeah, so but still I think a large percentage of, of fund foundations um, do limit the number of years they'll support a program. And sometimes there's really good reasons for that. Um, two years is a little short, <laughs> like yes. you said, you know. So I think each situation needs to take into consideration on, like you said, what is the duration of, of services that have to be done, you know, to get it, an impact. Does everything have to be done through a grant? I mean, if you're an organization that is in a, in a community where there's one provider uh, who's very effective doing one thing, let's say um, feeding the homeless, because we brought that up earlier, um, you know, obviously, you're not going to limit the amount of years they can apply for a grant. You may not even need to have a grant application if it's a very limited pool of who's doing it, right? I mean, there's no law that says that everything has to go through a grant in the funder world. Right. There is no law. Um, and again, every funder is a little different in why they're established and what they're trying to accomplish. But I don't know, most of us would rather do it than have to read your proposal in, in your grant report. Well, another piece of uh, uh, mythology is this idea that's gone on for at least 50 years that when you write a grant, you can include 10% for administration and no more. And it, it used to be specified up to 10% for administration. Uh, sometimes it's not specified, but it's kind of an unwritten law that most of us that have written a lot of grants know. Uh, but there's been, over the last five years, some conversation about changing that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, there's been a lot of conversation, mostly recently led by the Weingart Foundation, called the Real Cost Project. And so a lot of education to funders to understand if, you know, how much goes into running an effective organization you know, beyond that 10%. And if we have faith in the leadership and the organization, yeah, then we're going to be 
you know, less restrictive on how much, you know, goes to your overhead cost. So yeah, the, the 10% rule, I know we don't follow that one. I mean, our kind of general guideline is 30%. You know, um, and, but every nonprofit does their finances different and reports things differently. So th- those are all just kind of guidelines. I think for most organizations, 25 to 30% would be expected as a normal you know, amount of administrative support for programs, right? Um, and it, some different people couch it differently. Some people will put marketing and fundraising in their administration. Some will count that as part of program. So there's, you know, there's different ways of looking at things. But, you know, you don't want 50% of your organization to be fundraising, right? There has to be some limits. Good. I, you know, I, I hope you don't mind me chiming in, too, because uh, I, think, I think between the two of us, we're getting a lot of good information out there. <laughs> So what does make great fund development? Well, if you've been listening to this conversation, I can wrap it up by just saying, follow the mission. What you do in developing your funding for your organization is not so much about funding, but about developing the mission, which may lead to strategic partnerships, real wonderful relationships within the community that go beyond funding. It's all about relationships and relationship building. Inviting those people that are stakeholders in your program to come and visit the program, see it firsthand, do site visits, take them out to lunch, talk about the program, and invite them to meet staff. When it comes to great programs that deliver on the mission, it's all about getting people involved. When you pull people into the mission, you make them funders for life. Or they may also become volunteers or stakeholders of another kind, like a good strategic partnership. I hope this has been valuable for you. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Join us at the Summer School for Nonprofits for one amazing week every August. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS. <laughs>